As a result of a statewide police accountability reform adopted in 2020, New Yorkers gained access, at least in theory, to personnel records of law enforcement officers from all over the state. Implementation of this law has been wildly uneven, though, as police departments and unions for officers have gone to court to prevent disclosures, which don't always shed departments and their members in the most flattering light. But as a result of a successful lawsuit against the state police, the New York Civil Liberties Union has accessed more than two decades of officer misconduct and use of force records from state troopers, which are now available in a database form on the group's website, nyclu.org. For more on the records they obtained and what they mean, as well as the larger fight over personnel records of law enforcement officers, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Efi Chikazia, a legal fellow with the organization. Welcome to the show, Efi. Thanks. Happy to be here. And also joining us is Bobby Hodgson, a supervising attorney with the group. Welcome back to the program, Bobby. Thanks so much for having me back. So let's start with how we got to this point. Can you give me an abridged history following the legislative action in 2020 that was designed to make these records accessible to the public? What happened to get to this point with the launch of these databases? I mean, the short story is the New York State Police, as well as, you know, most other police departments and law enforcement agencies around the state threw up a bunch of barriers to the public getting access to records that the legislature in 2020 said the public should now have access to these records. Um, So we at the NYCLU in September of 2020, many months after Section 50A had been repealed and these records were supposed to be presumptively public, started a, a project, a statewide project to get access to a bunch of different agencies' disciplinary records from about the year 2000 on. We expected there to be some resistance, but we also expected to get a hold of those records pretty quickly because the law is really clear. We were surprised, frustrated, disappointed, and all those things to find that, in fact, all of these agencies were throwing up every type of barrier you could imagine from just delay, delay, delays in terms of responses to our freedom of information law requests to a bunch of different ways to essentially reimpose 50A under another name. Uh, So for the New York State Police request, you know, we made it in September of 2020, and we were trying to pry out as many records as they would give us in a somewhat uh, efficient way for about a year and a half before they finally told us for the first time, actually, we're not going to give you the vast majority of the things you've sought. Um, And at that point, we had to sue them. So in July of 2022, we sued them because they were giving us not a single underlying disciplinary record from the request that we had made. But what they did give us was some higher level information, essentially a database in the form of a spreadsheet that showed some basic information about two decades worth of misconduct investigations. And then for the same period, about two decades worth of information, again, high level about uses of force. We in court are fighting to try and get the underlying records here that would give us a lot more detail, give the public a lot more understanding about what the heck is going on in the New York State Police's accountability systems. And they have essentially made the legal argument that, number one, it's too hard, that it would be too burdensome for them to produce this large volume of records. Number two, they've made the sort of astonishing claim that we didn't reasonably describe our request when we... We used a statutory term. We said, please give us law enforcement disciplinary records, which are now defined in the law. And they essentially said, we don't we can't possibly know what that means. And therefore, you get nothing. And then finally, on a sort of more granular issue, they did redact 
every single officer's name that's associated with a complaint that didn't result in discipline. So what they call unsubstantiated or unfounded complaints on this giant spreadsheet, they fully blacked out those officers' names. Um, and they claim that that would be an invasion of an officer's privacy um, to let the public know that they're associated with some sort of investigation that didn't result in discipline. So on all of those counts, we are fighting them in court and we did obtain a, a great court order uh, in April of this year that instructed them to begin turning over the records you know, on a rolling basis promptly. They did not do that. And instead they, number one, asked the same judge to reconsider her opinion, which unsurprisingly she did not do. And then number two, they are also pursuing an appeal. This means that everything is on pause. We are not getting the records that the court ordered them to turn over. And we will have to continue fighting them in court, which is you know, what we're prepared to do. But at this point, we have been able to make some pretty you know, important conclusions about the, the records they did turn over. Well, yeah, I want to get into the larger trends and ideas that emerge from the data you did receive. But in terms of the limitations of it, what could you know from the records you're requesting that you aren't able to glean from the records and the type of records that you did receive? So, I mean, to start, we would know officers' names associated with unsubstantiated complaints, right? And that's important because we would know, is an officer, are they associated with 60 complaints that didn't result in discipline or two complaints that didn't result in discipline? That's information that their current redactions prevent us from knowing that we would clearly get. In addition to that, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing here where we don't know what we don't know, but we definitely you know, know that the underlying complaint records are going to have a lot more detail that explain in, you know, really key aspects of the investigation process, of the process that led to either discipline being imposed or not being imposed, the timing of that, the type of evidence that they considered, the resources they put into investigations. That's information that shows up in the sort of more detailed granular underlying investigation records that they fully denied to us um, that we really can't know when we're just looking at this much more mile high sort of high level database spreadsheet information. So this mile high view, as Bobby said, that we have now does tell us a good bit of information about the state police over the past two decades. Um, generally, we're seeing a lot of instances of misconduct, almost 20,000 regular uses of force, including use of tasers and use of pepper spray and an infrequent imposition of discipline. So in over half of the cases where the state police has determined that um, an allegation of misconduct is quote unquote um, substantiated based on its own internal process as it pleads itself, we're seeing that officers aren't even getting um, meaningfully disciplined or on the wrist, be that a reprimand or something of the like. So though we are very much still in court with the state police to get more data, as Bobby said, um, there is a story we can tell, at least at a high systemic level right now, and it is one that demonstrates very many instances of misconduct and not as many instances of discipline and regular use of force by the state police against New Yorkers. So turning then specifically to the database you have on misconduct and disciplinary actions, Ify, can you talk a little bit more about trends that you saw and what, if anything, they tell us about the way these actions are being processed by the state police when they 
have to consider allegations of misconduct? To start with um, the trends that we can tell from the data, as I mentioned, that there are very large amounts of misconduct allegations that are coming against the police force. We're not seeing these misconduct allegations dropping on time. And similarly, we're seeing thousands of instances of use of force. We're also seeing that state police are using force incidents that do raise some serious concerns. So, for example, nearly three use of force incidents being in the police force are arising during traffic stop, and 10% of use of force incidents are arising during mental health risks. And again, we're talking about thousands of use of force incidents, so these numbers are, are pretty high and significant, and we're seeing, um, as I mentioned at the top, that this includes things like regular use of tasers and regular use of pepper spray. So that's a data point that certainly raises some concerns. Um, we don't have more information about um, the information the police is considering as it's releasing itself. Um, although we do see from the data that there appears to be a general lack um, of accountability across the board, given that we're not seeing officers being frequently disciplined. And the data also raises questions about how the state police force is conducting its own investigation. So, um, for example, they are quote unquote initiating as they investigate themselves a surprisingly low number um, of allegations. Um, if those allegations reference things like racial discrimination or religious discrimination, um, and I encourage encourage folks to check out our website where we do include a bit more of our takeaways data, but. To tie back to the overarching point, some concerning data regarding state police interaction with New Yorkers, um, some concerning data regarding the lack of discipline that gets imposed, and certainly a few follow-up questions that were ongoing with. Well, how would you like the average New Yorker to utilize these two databases? So that's a good question. Um, like we mentioned at the top, I feel a lot of this information we're sharing has been completely opaque, completely hidden from the public due to this police secrecy law. So at base level, um, what we're hoping revealing this data does is just give people more information about how they are being policed um, and what is happening when they, maybe people they know, what have you, misconduct allegations are being made. So we're really hoping that this information in the hands of the public, in the hands of other advocates, um, what have you, can shed transparency where it's been lacking for a really long time. And hopefully this helps people spark ideas, spark change, spark advocacy, spark uh, further questions, spark deeper dives, what have you. Um, but um, helps people, um, you know, have more agency, have more knowledge, have way more understanding um, in how they are being policed by what is the second largest police in New York State. And after a quick break, we'll continue our discussion with representatives from the New York Civil Liberties Union about two decades of state police records they've obtained, which have been compiled into databases and reports you can find at nyclu.org.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about two decades of state police records compiled by the New York Liberties Union, which has created databases and reports that can be found at nyclu.org. And our guests are Ifi Chikazia, a legal fellow with the organization, as well as Bobby Hodgson, a supervising attorney for the group. And before the break, we were talking about the findings from the data you received, and I was struck by the framing of the data as you used adjectives in this conversation like a lot, infrequent, large, and high to describe the trends you found with the press releases throwing the term only uh, before certain percentages. So I'm curious how you reached these value judgments. Are there numbers that would represent acceptable or normal findings? Or more importantly, I guess, can you talk about how you went about interpreting the data that you did receive? Obviously, unfortunately, we can't get into all of the data points or quantitative findings that we found in the data on this now. But part of what we're making available to the public are two officer lookup tools so that people can see what we've received and are able to look up, for example, what their own local troop is doing compared to regional troops around the state. Mm. They can use the officer lookup tool. Um, so they can see the numbers, um, data, dive into that themselves. So I say our preliminary analysis right now is kind of looking across the state, What what is the information that we've seen? And we do know that more than half of acts of misconduct that were substantiated by the police department, for example, were given no more of a slap of a wrist. You know, this is something that is clear from the data we've received, and that is what we've published on our website. I think beyond that, <laughs> sure, people can totally look at this information um, and, you know, take away, you know, what they may raise further questions that they may have and continue to tune in as we publish more of what we receive um, from the data. People can and should draw their own conclusions, but from the NYCLU's perspective, these numbers certainly are alarming. And based on our experience um, with policing and the legal system at large, and the data does raise really important questions that would be answered better by the records the state police force is still withholding. Well, in order to present the fullest picture of police officers and their conduct, is there any merit in attempting to obtain items in personnel records that might demonstrate flattering conduct, like accommodations and essentially folding them into your database and reports? Uh, Is that something that you have any interest in, assuming you can access those records if they do exist at all? Part of the, the sort of problem that the repeal of 58 was correcting is that any sort of unflattering information is what had been kept secret. And things like commendations or praise for officers are things that have routinely been made public for a very long time by the police departments themselves. So certainly they continue to have the right and the ability to publicize whatever it is they want to publicize about officers' records, officers' internal personnel files. But in order to get an actual full picture, we are very much focusing on the information that has been kept secret. And that is a you know, really great public concern and causes a lot of alarm to anybody asking questions about whether accountability systems have been functioning in the state for the past four decades when there's been no public information about discipline or 
um, the, the sort of flip side of that. So right, I, I but Bobby, I'm not aware of a database that exists of police accommodations. So why wouldn't there be a benefit for NYCLU to include something like that? Because it seems like if I wanted to be a devil's advocate, like you're only trying to present one view of this and essentially playing by the same rules as the state police or other law enforcement who only provide their version of events. You're only providing your version of events. Well, I guess our answer is and has always been that more transparency is good for everyone. More information should be public. We are certainly not opposed to making any of that info public. All right. So, uh, so why isn't so, NYCLU rolling that out as part of this project? Well, sure. I think part of it is that we focused you know, our resources on asking specifically for the information that's been kept secret for so long and that has been so hard to pry out of the, you know, the, the hands of these agencies. Um, I think the type of information you're talking about, you know, that would involve different requests, that would involve a lot of other resources that, um, you know, we didn't put into this particular project. Would it be a uh, lot of resources? Because you're saying they're very easy to obtain right now and that they're willing to hand this type of stuff over. Well, I, I again, I, I think that wasn't part of the request that we're litigating here. Um, if if the agencies want to sort of respond to the information that we're publishing or include when they turn over officer disciplinary files, anything that's included in those files, you know, that's information that we want to and will make public, <laughs> you know, alongside all the other information that we get. Um, we're, we're very much interested in focusing on getting at the the files, the records, and the information that has been kept secret for so long, but we are very much interested in, you know, in ensuring that there's transparency around all of this, and the more transparency, the better. Uh, that would just lead to a, you know, a more informed public conversation about the records that exist. And in terms of transparency efforts more broadly, where do things stand with efforts to get personnel records from other departments, and are there any potential cases, say, heading to the State Court of Appeals that might serve as a precedent to inform efforts to get records from police departments that might be challenging these efforts in court? Absolutely. Um, so we ourselves have a number of other cases in addition to the one against the New York State Police that are actually a little further along before the New York State Courts. We have a case against the Rochester Police Department where we won a, a you know an important victory back in November of 2022, where Rochester had been fully withholding all of their police disciplinary records that uh, were associated with quote unquote unsubstantiated complaints, and the appellate court there ordered them to turn them over. Um, so the Court of Appeals has taken up that case to you know clarify this issue and provide some statewide uniformity, and we're really hopeful that that's a decision that is going to you know, help our efforts and the efforts of other folks who are seeking these same type of records and running into the same types of uh, denials and uh, and barriers. You know, I could, <laughs> if, if you've got a few hours, I could list the, the dozens of other cases we're involved in and that uh, we know other folks are involved in trying to get at, you know, basically that the same type of records that are, um, that are being withheld across the state. Um, but that's the case that's farthest along. And that's hopefully one that's going to provide some clarity and uniformity around the state. We're really uh, hopeful and optimistic about how that'll turn out. Well, finally, is there an avenue where the legislature and the governor could provide that clarity by revisiting the state law that made these records accessible in the first place? Or is there an assumption that any efforts to try to clarify this would still invite legal challenges in the future and you're going to go to court one way or another? 
you know, there's currently a bill out there that uh, would clarify and address some of the specific legal arguments that folks have raised since the law was amended in 2020. Um, I think efforts to get that passed do not undermine or undercut our legal arguments in any way. I think it's 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 a matter of moving on parallel tracks and understanding that progress in court is frustratingly and necessarily a little bit slow. And so to the extent the legislature can just go ahead and pass a law that um, very specifically addresses each of these, these new arguments that have been raised and says, no, no, uh, it has always been the case that we intended to turn over these records and agencies should do so promptly, that would be fantastic. We would anticipate that there would still be some fights down the road because there is always resistance after that, but it would go a long way towards clarifying and uh, and speeding up the process of finally getting these records in the public view where, where they belong. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank our guests for joining us. We've been speaking with Ethi Chikazia, a legal fellow with the New York Civil Liberties Union, as well as Bobby Hodgson, a supervising attorney with the organization. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And if anyone's interested in checking out those databases, they can be found at nyclu.org. Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.